0: A pastor met one of his members on the street who had missed church the day before, and the question came from the man. He said, what did you preach on Sunday, pastor? The pastor replied, I took my text from John chapter 1, and I spoke about Andrew. The man seemed very surprised, and he said, Andrew? He said, why, I hardly remember anything about him at all in the Bible. I mean, he didn't write any of the books in the Bible, did he? Why would you preach about Andrew? Well, I want you to know that we're going to talk about Andrew today. As we come to John chapter 1, we're going to talk about Andrew and my heart was so warmed this last week in studying Andrew and this whole passage before us with the first four disciples, Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, that come to follow Jesus Christ. My heart was so warmed. There are just so many things that I would have liked to have put in here that have been left out. but. Here we continue to come back to study Jesus Christ and his interaction with men, and that has an effect of warming your heart, I think, anytime you approach this passage or this book, this Gospel of John. Now, you remember that John is writing with the purpose in mind of presenting Jesus as the Son of God, and he has a very distinct method. What he is doing as he moves through his Gospel is he is bringing in witnesses so that he brings in one witness after the next and he builds his case to declare that Jesus is the Son of God, to declare the deity of Jesus Christ. So what we have here in front of us then as men that are called effectively to the witness stand are the first four disciples, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. Now I want to talk about Andrew this time because I think that probably many of us have spent little time even thinking about him. I think perhaps many of us, if we met the pastor on Monday and heard he preached on Sunday about Andrew, would ask the same question, why would you preach about Andrew? Peter I can see, yes, maybe John, maybe one of the others, but why Andrew? Well I think your heart will be warmed as well as we look at this passage and as we look at Andrew. And we will begin by looking at verse 35 and read on down to verse 42 or so. Remember, John the Baptist has been out there preaching in expectation of the Messiah. And we read in verse 35, again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated, which John does for us, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. It's amazing, even as John writes, he seems to realize that given all the information on Peter and the other Gospels, the first three that had already been written, everybody would know Peter, but not many would know Andrew because John says more about Andrew than any of the other ones or all of them even combined. So he identifies him with Simon Peter right up front even. And we'll have more to say about that when we get to talking about Peter next time. But notice here as we begin that the other disciple remains unnamed. Most certainly that is John, otherwise he would have just named him. And you know that as he moves through his gospel, he has the sneaky habit of not naming himself when he is in the picture. So this is, seems to obviously be John. He likes to just include himself because he's in the, in the narrative and he doesn't want to call attention to himself. For example, even in John 18... If you turn to John 18 just for a moment and look at verses 15 and 16, you remember when Jesus told Peter, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat, and then the disciples forsook Jesus and scattered at the garden. Then we know that Peter went and followed Jesus, and he went on in and he got into the courtyard where they were trying him, and he denied the Lord. You may not realize that there was another disciple who went with him. And John tells us that in verse 15 of chapter 18, it says, Simon, Peter followed Jesus. And here it is. So did another disciple. Now, that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. So they knew him at the gate. They said, come on in. But they didn't know Peter, so Peter stood outside. And the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went in and spoke to her that kept the door and said, Look, he's my friend. He's okay. He's all right. Let the guy in. So he got Peter in. I read through the Bible for years and never even noticed that. But notice, it's another disciple. Why isn't he named? This is pretty important. Well, it's in John's Gospel. He's not named. It must be John. That's his style. He's humble, really. So the first disciple, then, that we actually meet by name... Even though there are two here, we can safely assume one is John, is Andrew. We meet him by name. So go back to John chapter 1, and let's spend some time getting to know Andrew. Now, the Bible doesn't say much about him, but what the Bible does say about him is very encouraging and very edifying and very heartwarming. I want to focus on just three things that have to do with Andrew as we move through this message this time. First of all, his background, just a little bit about his background. Secondly, his encounter with Jesus. And then third, his witness. That's it, just three things. Let's begin by talking about Andrew's background. One of the things that strikes me immediately about Andrew as you begin to contemplate his life is the fact that he was a common man, just a common man. In Luke chapter 5, you don't have to turn there, but it tells us there that James and John were partners in a fishing business with Simon Peter. Andrew, of course, was his brother. So it seems that here he is, obviously he's a fisherman. He is a, a man who is close friends with Peter Because he's his brother. He's close friends with James and John. So there's this quad. There's these four guys that are close friends. They fish together, but they're just common men. So here is this common man, a fisherman by trade. And Jesus calls him to be one of his disciples, one of his apostles. That is so encouraging to me. Because God has ordained to use common, ordinary people in his kingdom. I often think of David's army in the Old Testament. David called together his army out of a bunch of ragtag guys, and they ended up being a tremendous bunch of soldiers. Turn, could you in your Bible, the first Corinthians to chapter one to verse 26? This scripture ministers to me so often. God has chosen to use common, ordinary people. That means like me and like you. It means that he has plans for us, even though we're common and ordinary. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1:26 and 27 Paul writes and he says for you see your calling brethren that not many wise according to the flesh not many mighty not many noble are called but God has chosen this is what he's chosen to do he has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty So God has chosen to use common, ordinary individuals to expand His kingdom. One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible is found in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Could you turn there and read it with me? Peter and John are out there. They're preaching up a storm. God is using them in a mighty way. And they are perplexing the people around them. They're sort of a conundrum. They're a mystery. The people can't quite figure them out. I mean, these are not famous men that we know that have been popular political figures or government officials or anything like that. They're not famous actors. They're not stars in our midst. They're nothing like that. And yet they are doing this great thing. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. How could something so powerful and so effective to change so many lives come from simply untrained, unlearned, ignorant men? How could that happen? And then they attach this understanding. And they realize that they had been with Jesus. Isn't that sweet? To realize that you may be a common person. Now, there may be a few erudite geniuses, noble among us. Some blue bloods who were raised on a silver spoon. To realize that God has chosen to use common people, this is so important, because so many of you have been saved out of common backgrounds, even low-life backgrounds. So many of you drifted so deeply down into sin that by the time you came to Christ, you were so far down that there was no farther you could go. So whatever you may have started out with, you lost it through a wicked lifestyle, through sin and bondage and corruption, and Jesus found you. And by the time He found you, you were very common indeed. And thus we read these words, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized they had been with Jesus. That's because Jesus makes a difference. Jesus makes all the difference. That is so fascinating to me when you compare it with the scripture you find in Mark chapter 12 and verse 37. I'll just read it to you. It says here that Jesus is preaching along, and then we read this, And the common people heard him gladly. Now picture in your mind who was listening to Jesus. Picture in your mind who was rejecting Him. And then picture in your mind it says the common people heard Him gladly. If you realize that the bulk of the people that responded to Jesus were common people, and then you go back and remember this guy Andrew, he's a common man. You read in 1 Corinthians, God loves to choose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And then it was ignorant, unlearned men who were turning the world upside down for Christ. You, you get the connection. The common people heard Him gladly. The common people are called to expand His kingdom in terms of the most numbers. And thus, you realize as a common person that there is a great place for you in the kingdom of God. And I rejoice over that. Because by the time the Lord found me, my life had not gone in any direction that I had hoped it was as I was growing up. Everything was all messed up. None of my goals had been realized in the sense that I wanted them to be, and I kept getting new goals and abandoning them, so that's a good reason why so many of them weren't realized. And the Lord found me, and I didn't know what in the world He could possibly do with me. Ignorant, unlearned, no formal education. I mean, I don't know nothing about nothing. (laughs) I want to say this, God wants to use you. Don't put Him in a box, don't limit Him, don't try to even figure Him out but be open to him. Andrew was a common man. Further, we find something else about Andrew. If you go back to John one thirty-five, Andrew was a man of biblical convictions. He was a man of biblical convictions. It says in John one thirty-five. and the next day John stood with, that's John the Baptist, stood with two of his disciples, one of which was Andrew. Now if you just read that short verse, it tells us something very important about this man. That is, that he was a man of biblical convictions. You say, well, how do you know that? How do you get that from just that one verse? Well, because if you analyze the condition of the religious world around them at the time, they were shallow, they were given into complete ritualistic type religion. So what you learn by reading that he's a disciple of John's is this. He rejected the shallow course of religion of his day. He was the kind of man who was willing to go against the grain of the religious world around him, willing to stand up for his convictions, even though he was vastly outnumbered. He was a man of great conviction, biblical conviction. He was a man, get this, who could not be satisfied by religious ritual. That speaks volumes to me. He was a man who could not be satisfied by a religious ritual because the established religious community, as I said, was very satisfied with that. They were practically, I don't mean almost, but I mean in a practical way, they were disconnected from God. That is so clear in the Bible. Not only were they content with just going through the motions, but they were also proud of their ritualistic religion. And the two go hand in hand. So here is Andrew, and he is a kind of man who cannot be satisfied with that, and that tells us a lot about him. Andrew's religious involvement was an index to a sincere desire to know God. That's why he was with John the Baptist and his small group rather than being with all the other religious people in that day. Now, do you realize how many people in the world today are satisfied with just rituals, with just going to church, burning a few candles, sitting in some services, whatever it might be, and that is enough for them? Andrew was not that kind of a man, and thus he becomes a good example to us. You see, what he was responding to was a message of repentance. Rather than a message of a ritualistic type religion where all that matters is going through the motions, he was responding to a message of repentance which was coming from John. So he moved from mainstream religion around him out into the desert to be a disciple of John and thus his heart was given over to repentance and prepared for further revelation from Jesus Christ when he came. Now let me ask you a very serious question. Do you claim to be a Christian today? Is it your claim to your friends to be a Christian? If so, let me ask you this. Are you satisfied with an external religious Christian life? Are you satisfied with going through the motions? Is it enough for you just to go through the motions outwardly? Is it enough for you to just be a member of the crowd? Is it enough for you to just get in the car and go to the place and watch the event and leave? Is it enough for you to just go through your Christian life like that? Are you satisfied with that? You see, I think in looking at Andrew and how he refused to be a part of the religious hypocrisy around him, which was all external, we are forced to take a look at ourselves. We are forced to take a hard look and come to grips with this. What side are you going to be on? I mean, that's the way to really see it. What side are you going to be on? Are you going to be on the side of the religious hypocrites who are happy with external rituals, with no real connection to God, and no real sacrifices made for God? Or are you going to be on the side of those that, that side with a message of repentance and a lifestyle of repentance before God, all of which will bring you to a place of further revelation from Jesus Christ? Which side are you on today? You see, if you're content with religious ritual and going through the motions... You've really already taken your side and you need to admit it to yourself. Then you need to ask yourself if that's the side you want to be on. Now I'll tell you this, it's the empty side to be on. It's a dreadful side to be on. More about that as we move along. You might be thinking... But isn't the most important thing in the world to be sincerely religious? I mean, isn't that it? You can't imagine how many relatives I have that say that to me. You're talking to them about Jesus in a personal relationship, and they sort of cross their arms and begin to look a little religious and sort of warm into a sincere look, and they they begin to really get relativity with you. And uh, then they say, but come on, after all, isn't it true that God's just looking for sincerity? Doesn't he just want us to sincerely be religious? I mean, isn't that really the thing? <laughs> Do you realize that Jesus said to those very kind of people in his day, in Luke 13:3, he said, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That is the words of Jesus to that kind of thinking. Andrew rejected the shallow religious religion of his day. And he used further, he used the preaching he heard to get closer to Jesus. The two go hand in hand. In John 136, in looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, John is preaching. And then you read this in verse 37, And the two disciples, one of which was Andrew, heard him speak. They heard his message. They heard him preach. And then this, they followed Jesus. Does the preaching that you hear, does it get you closer to Jesus? Do you take it and use it to get closer to Jesus? You see, that's what Andrew did. And that's one of the beautiful things about him. He took the preaching that he heard and he ends up closer to Jesus because of it. So many Christians here are preaching after preaching after preaching and sermon after sermon and they don't get any closer to Jesus because of it. I do pray for all of us here that are here studying this right now, that this message, this message, will have an impact on our lives. So we see that this is Andrew's background. Just a little bit of a look at him. Now let's go to Andrew's encounter here with Jesus. Verses 37 through 39. It says, The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. This is such a, such a wonderful picture. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following said to them what do you see do you get the picture here's jesus he's walking by john the baptist says everybody look behold the lamb of god and then andrew and evidently john they turn and they look and they listen to john and they follow his cue and they leave and they're they're going down the road after jesus so here's jesus just walking along walking along all of a sudden you know he knows everything. He's God. So all of a sudden, with his eyes that go all the way around his head, he's looking behind him while he's looking forward. And he sees these two guys, you know, coming along behind him. And they're, come on, walk a little faster. No, he'll he'll, he'll hear his coming. I don't know. Can't you go faster? Well, why did you go faster? And you can just see this. They're shy. They're moving along. I mean, 40 centuries they've been waiting for this guy. So here they are, and they're walking along behind him. Jesus stops. He senses there's two guys drawing near to him. And he turns around and he's looking at them. And he begins to talk to them and he poses a question to them. It says here, Then Jesus turned, and having seen them following, literally, he said to them, What do you seek? You realize immediately that the moment you take a step toward Jesus, he's aware of it. He's watching you. He's pondering you. He knows exactly what you're up to. And he wants to take that advance and turn it into something wonderful. So he turns and he poses this question to them. Here's the question given by Jesus. It is this. What do you seek? Now, friends, that is one of the most penetrating questions you're going to find in all the Bible. Here we have in the Gospel of John. These are the first recorded words of Jesus John chose them carefully the incident was chosen carefully by the Holy Spirit through John and the first thing that we hear Jesus speak to a man who is coming up after him is this what are you seeking what are you seeking think about that now you have to get the picture of what his face might have looked like if he if he looked at him like this and said what are you seeking well then that would say one thing but if he looked at them and he said What are you seeking? And he smiled. You see, that would say another. He says to them, what do you seek? It was extremely penetrating. Can you imagine those eyes looking into yours and saying, what is it that you're seeking? Imagine how you feel at that moment. Something would happen to you. I mean, something would go deep down within you. There would be an an instant kind of examination. You see, those words sunk into John's ears and went down into his heart, and he never forgot them. He's writing now at the end of his life, and he's remembering that's how much of an impact they had on him. What is it that you're seeking? Great words, a great question. What do you seek? And he realized, of course, the question was for them and not for him. He wasn't saying, I don't know a thing about you. Can you help me get to know you? What is it that you're after? He knew what was in man. He knew everything. He is asking the question for their benefit. You know what he's doing right here? He senses them moving up toward him. He turns around to face them. He begins to talk to them. He is immediately beginning the discipling process. A few steps toward Jesus and he takes them and he starts the discipling process. Don't you love it? That is what he's doing. What do you seek, he sends to them. Now there's a couple of ways to look at this. One is generally. And one is generally, we could look at this, he is generally saying to them, what are you seeking in your life? What are you seeking? Now remember, this question is for their benefit. What is it that you're seeking? Do you realize today how many people are living incoherent, unreflective lives? He is wanting to disciple men who will be clear thinkers with honest hearts and honest motives. So right in the beginning, he starts leading them in that way. What are you seeking? What is it that you're after in life? Think of how many people live unreflective lives. They they never really sit down and, and reflect on what it is they're going after. They just sort of move along through life. Are you one of them just carried along by circumstances? Are you a person who just reacts to your circumstances in life? Do you live your life by responding to anxiety? So many people live that way. Jesus poses the question, what are you seeking? You see, you read the Bible and you begin to discover something. God has made us, men and women, for more nobler things than just reacting to circumstances in life. God has made us for more nobler things than reacting to crisis one after the next or anxiety. God has made us to walk with Him. He has not designed us to be the kind of people that are unable to keep a straight course in life. How about you? What are you seeking? What are you after? What is it that you're living for? Let me pose it to you this way. Could you answer this question, what are you seeking? And could you do it aloud and not be ashamed of yourself? If I said to you, come up and get the mic and tell us, what are you seeking? Would you be terribly ashamed to say what it is that you're really seeking in life? You see, I have found that some people are not ashamed to do, but they are ashamed to say. So that you could have that scenario, could you come and tell us what it is you're seeking, the person would be ashamed to say it. But they're not ashamed to go live it Monday through Friday, you understand? Not ashamed to go out and do it, but ashamed really to articulate it out of their own mouth to people that know them. What is it that you're seeking? What are you living for? Are you ashamed to come right out and say it? Alexander McLaren is a a writer that I'm growing to appreciate more and more as the years go by. I used to think he was flowery. Now I think he's deep. And there is a difference between the two things. And I think that when early on when we're so shallow, we think depth is floweriness when in fact it's just the opposite. Alexander McLaren said this, There may be many of us who are living for our lusts, for our passions, for our ambitions, for greed, who are living in all uncleanness and godlessness. There are plenty of shabby, low aims in all of us which do not bear being dragged out into the light of day. I beseech you, to try and get hold of the ugly things and bring them up to the surface. However much they may seek to hide in the friendly obscurity and twist their slimy coils around something in the dark. If you dare not put your life's object into words, seriously ask yourselves whether it ought to be your life's object at all. Good words. He said those in the 1800s. Do you realize that a major part of the discipling process for all of us, for you and for me, is learning to think in honest terms about ourselves? That's a major part of the discipling process. Learning to think in honest terms about ourselves. Jesus is generally saying to these men, what are you seeking in your life? But more specifically, he is saying something else. He is saying specifically, what do you want from me? What are you seeking from me? Now, that is quite a question. Let me give it to you. What are you seeking Jesus for today? Why are you here today with God's people? What are you after? Do you want Jesus to make you a famous singer? We have had people here in the past, and I can tell you with all honesty, having assessed them for years on end, that their main goal was to see Jesus make them a famous singer. Is that what you're after? Are you after Jesus making you a famous musician, maybe get you so famous that you could go secular and and abandon the gospel thing and make more money? What, What is it that you're after? Why are you seeking Jesus? What a question. Do you want him to make you wealthy? Are you seeking him to make you wealthy? There are enough heretics in the church that would promise you that he'll do that if you seek him and learn all the right terms. Are you seeking him because you want a position among God's people? Do you want a position of power? Why do you seek him? Or are you just coming to church to pray upon God's people, to sell your product, sell yourself, whatever? Why are you here with God's people? These are important questions. What is it that you're seeking from Jesus? Are you seeking Jesus to ease your conscience by just sitting in church? Why are you in church? Why are you here seeking Jesus? What do you want from him? He turns to these men who are following after him and he says, effectively, what is it you want from me? What, what are you seeking and you know, they respond in such a wonderful way with the answer of a true heart. I love this. It is so simple, but it is so wonderful. In John one thirty-eight, Jesus turned and seeing them following, he said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi. It's the first word out of their mouth. John translates it for us, which is to say translated teacher. What is it that you're seeking? Rabbi, what is it that you're seeking from me? Teacher, what is it that you're seeking from me? Master, we'll tell you what we're seeking from you, you. We want you. We're not coming for these other things, we want you. What we want from you is for you to be the center of our whole life. What we want from you is truth to enlighten our understanding. What we want from you is rest and peace for our souls as he promised in much of his preaching. What we want from you is godliness to guide our affections, to guide our desires. That's what we want from you. What we want from you is a clean conscience. We want to be able to wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and be happy to be who we are. What we want from you is a true relationship with God. What is it that you're seeking? Teacher. We want you to teach us. We want you to guide us. We want you to make us everything that God intended man to be. We want you to be the center of our life. We want you. We're seeking you. That is what we want. It's so wonderful to contemplate it. Have any of you ever seen what a prism does to light? You hold up a prism, and it will take the light that comes through it. You can have a white beam of light, and it will split the light into colors, so that what you find is that in a white beam of light, there are many, many colors gathered into that one beam of light, that one white beam of light. I see that as this thing here. What is it that you're seeking, teacher? We're seeking you. Because in you are all the colors. In you, as it were, in one beam of light, the one light being, are all the things that we need in life. And thus we seek you. And I say to you tonight, what is it that you're seeking in Jesus? What is it that you, that you really are seeking Him for? Can you answer with a true heart, the deepest of all answers, and say, really the truest of all answers, my soul thirsts for Thee, O God? Is that your answer? Why am I seeking You, Jesus? Because of You. I want You. I'm seeking You. I want to know You. I want to know God. I want You to be my master, my teacher, and my guide. They gave the true answer. Great question given by Jesus. And then comes this great invitation by Jesus. Oh, by the way, they said to him, Teacher, then they said, Where are you staying? Good question. He responds with an invitation. He says, Come and see. Then they came and saw where he was staying. Nothing mentioned about that place. And remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. You know where he probably took them? Just a little farther down the river. Where are you staying? Come and see And they walk 10 minutes and they see nothing. (laughs) This is it. You like it? It's kind of neat, isn't it? Big oak tree. I I like the shade there and I slept there last night. There's my burned out campfire. Want to stay with me? It's a great place. You see, remember Jesus said the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Show us where you're staying. We'll come along and see. It was about the 10th hour. could have been... Depending on Hebrew time or Roman time, whichever time John is using could have been 10 o'clock in the morning, could have been 4 o'clock in the afternoon, depending on which time system John seems to be working off of. At any rate, they received this invitation, come and see, and they spent the rest of the day with him. Come and see where I live? Well, maybe. I'm sure that's part of it. But you see, this entire conversation is about much deeper things. This entire conversation is all about the meaning of life. This entire conversation is all about two men that took off in response to the preaching that they had heard to follow the men that the human race, the man the human race had been waiting 40 centuries to come and see. He turns to them and he says, come and see. I think he meant something a little more deep than come and see my shack, come and see my tent or my sleeping bag. I think he was really saying, come and see everything that I have come to reveal to the human race, everything you've been waiting all these centuries to see. You come and follow me and you're going to see what you hope to see. It was a boundless promise. Incredible moment. Can you imagine how those guys felt? Philip picked up this idea when he went to lead Nathaniel to Jesus. If you just look down at verse 46... And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip is all excited. He runs, finds Nathanael. Nathanael's sitting around eating a piece of pita bread. And he says to Philip, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. He picked up on it. Man, the thing about this guy is come and see. Because he's got everything that everybody in the human race really needs to see. Jesus gave them an invitation to get to know him personally I just love that because that invitation is for every man It's for you I do hope you're taking advantage of that I do hope you are following him for the right reasons I do hope you are getting to know him personally If you're not, you're wasting your life And I'll have to ask you this question When do you plan on making the change? And how bad will it have to get for you? How many disappointments and heartaches is it going to take until you realize that what you really need in life is Him? You see, you may be seeking all these other things, but what you're really looking for deep down inside is satisfaction. What you're really looking for deep down inside is peace. So I have to tell you, even if you're not really following after Him, what you're really wanting in life is what only He can give. He gave an invitation to know Him personally. And He extends that invitation to you today. And then He gave them an invitation to serve Him personally. And that is what always follows. If you turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 4 to verse 18, you see this, the official call to His unique ministry by Jesus that He gives to Andrew. Matthew four eighteen. So they go to stay with Jesus wherever He was staying at the time. They spent the rest of the day there and left. Later on, Jesus comes along and officially calls them into ministry. Matthew four eighteen. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. The time has come, guys. We've been getting to know each other for a while. The time has come now for you to begin to serve with me. It is a personal invitation to them to serve Him personally. And I'll tell you, there is nothing more exciting in the Christian life than when God brings you to that point. You've been getting to know Jesus. You've been spending time with Him. You've been answering that personal invitation to know Him personally. And then begins this strong thing that comes upon your heart. It begins to get a hold of you. It almost creeps up on you. And then all of a sudden it begins to be articulated and you start hearing sermons and there's things being said in the sermon that just speak right to that feeling. You begin to realize God's calling you. It's one of the most exciting things that could ever happen to you. I remember when God began to call me to the pastorate and it just slowly creeped up on me. And at first I was wondering, there were the questions, well, what am I seeking? Why am I doing this? Is this just my pride? Do I just want a position of power? Do I want to be famous? What is it I'm after here? Well, I worked through all of that. Then I realized, well, that's fleshy to want those things. But having worked through the issues, all I want is God's will in my life. Then I, the thing just kept going. And I'd sit in sermons and talk of a calling, it hit my life like a thunderbolt. Oh, he's talking to me again. Lord, you got the wrong guy. Once do moved you move to this guy next to me on one row over? Call him, will you? And I began to realize he was calling me. And finally, I began to understand, look, if he is calling me, his grace will be sufficient. His calling will be his enabling. I must answer that call. And one of the most thrilling days of my life was when I finally came to the conclusion of what he was calling me to do and then became willing to do it. Then began to step out and watch him meet me in the way. He comes along, they're throwing their nets out. They're still working away, but they've been getting to know him. And he says, now it's time to put the nets down. You come, I want you to do something with me full time. Boy, what a great day that was. And it says they immediately left their nets and followed him. Why? Because it was time. And the great thing here is that Andrew's calling brought him into the inner circle with Jesus, with the disciples. There were 12 disciples. There were three groups of four. They are always listed together, these groups. Every time you find the lists, Andrew is in list number one. That is a group of four people, the most intimate circle of people in Jesus' life. And Andrew is always there in that list. He was in the inner circle of the disciples with Jesus. Now, that becomes more amazing when, again, you contemplate the fact he's a common man. And then you look at how he encountered Jesus and began to follow him. And then even more, if you go on and compare him with Peter and some of the other, like Paul, people like that. Andrew's not a sensational guy. He's not... A big man of power and influence that everybody knows his name. He's not like that at all. So it becomes fascinating to go to our last point for our study with Andrew. We've seen his background, his encounter. It becomes fascinating when we come to verse 40 in John 1 to begin to look at Andrew's witness for Jesus. To know that he was in the inner circle with Jesus, yet he was not a man of big speaking abilities like Peter, and he, he wasn't the natural-born leader. I'm convinced that, that Andrew grew up literally under the shadow of his brother, the natural leader type. Probably was introduced to people as, this is Simon Peter's brother. Hey, he's even introduced that way here in front of us. I mean, he lived with that. And yet he had a special quality about him that is so wonderful. Let's look at his witness. What you see when you study Andrew is this. Very simply, you see his witness in bringing people to Jesus. This is what the man lived for. We don't know much again about Andrew, but what we see about him involves bringing people to Jesus. Look at verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah which is translated to Christ. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew Simon, Peter's brother. Peter, we know who is Andrew. You know, so he lived his whole life like that. But the great thing about Andrew that I love so much is that having lived his life like that, he could have sat back and said, well, you know, the whole human race has been waiting the whole time for this man. I have found him. I have found the Messiah. And Peter, hmm, should I tell Peter? I've always had to play second fiddle. This time I've got the news. This time I'm going to be the one. In fact, the last guy I'm going to tell is going to be Peter. I don't want him stealing the limelight. If I tell Peter, he'll come along. There'll be a team. He'll start working his way around. He'll just have all of his usual stuff. The next thing, he'll be the spokesman for the whole group. Everybody will know who he is. I'll be in the background. Andrew, who's here? Peter, we know. Andrew, we don't know. And instead, here's this great thing. He goes straight straight away and finds Peter. What a guy. What a heart. What was he seeking? See, Jesus filtered him right up front. What is it that you want here? I want you. And to prove it, that he's not after anything else, the very next thing he does is he goes and he finds Peter. And he goes right to the home and begins to evangelize. And I want to say this. That's where it should begin. Evangelism should begin in the home. One writer put it this way. He said, The day after John baptized Jesus, he introduced two of his disciples to Christ. Immediately they began to follow him. One of the two was Andrew, who found his brother Simon and told him about Christ. Immediately they began to follow him. And Simon, whose name was changed to Peter, became a, one of Christ's most ardent followers. Andrew's burden for his brother illustrates an important point. Evangelism should begin with those closest to us, the members of our own family circle. They may ridicule our testimony, but as they see a change in our life, They cannot help but be impacted by it. As soon after his conversion as possible, D.L. Moody traveled back home to tell his closest relatives about Christ. Through his persistent witness, some of his family eventually placed their trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior. The fact is, the writer says, it is hard to speak about Christ to our loved ones. He makes a good point here. He says for some people it would be easier to send a $1,000 to an evangelist and ask him to do the preaching for them. But a personal witness from a family member can produce wonderful results. He cites the example of Moshe Rosen, the man who founded Jews for Jesus, who says that his wife, Seal, is not much of a soul winner. This is what Moshe Rosen says about his wife. Not much of a soul winner. He says, in fact, the only people she has ever won to Christ are her daughters and me. And yet through Rosen's witness, many thousands have come to Christ. What would have happened if his wife had remained silent? See, she wasn't the big outward evangelist crusade type. And neither was Andrew. But Andrew went home and Andrew led his brother Peter to Christ and the rest is biblical history. How important that we go straight to our homes and witness to our relatives. How important that we care enough to confront them with the truth. Now, yes, they may mock you, they may scorn you, they may say, oh yeah, it's you again. Of all oh, of course. It had to happen. It was inevitable. You, the one who goes from one thing to the next. Last year it was this thing. The year before that it was that thing. I remember when you were into old cars. And we had to hear about old cars. And then you were into dieting and we had to get on the diet with you. And then you were on this other thing. And then you were meditating. And then you were you were gonna be a guru in the Himalayas and we had to hear that guru talk. And now it's Jesus. What will it be next year? So you have to put up with that mockery because typically all of us when we come to Christ have had so many gigs that we've been on. That's the way it is. But the great thing is just to remain calm and loving in the face of all of that and just say, well, this time all I can say is whereas once I was blind and have been blind the whole time, now I see and you're going to see the change as time goes by. Give them the full truth. Give it to them lovingly and then let them watch God change you. We must start in the homes. We see him bringing Peter to Christ. Another thing we see, I love this, is in uh, John 6, 8. You could turn over there in your Bible. It's the next time we see Andrew, and he is bringing the boy with the loaves to Jesus. It's the feeding of the 5,000. The other gospel writers tell us the disciples wanted to send all the people away, let them go get their own food. They're hungry. Let them go somewhere to another town and buy it. Jesus suggested that it was they who should feed them. Now, Jesus had a plan in mind, of course. So what Jesus does is he puts a little test on Philip, and he asks Philip where they could get enough bread to give to the crowd. Just a little test. You've been with me for a while. Let's see what you've been learning. Where can we get enough bread to feed this crowd? Philip, being the mathematical type, sort of the accountant type, he starts to calculate... Let's see, there's this many people 5,000 men, probably 25,000 women and children We've got a crowd of 30,000 Let's see, you make a denarii a day Let's see, not two. Wow, 200 denarii I could not buy enough bread to feed all of them Even a little tiny bit So bent on his mathematical thing That he missed the miraculous he, he missed what Jesus wanted to do He was too cognitive, too mental To give room for the miraculous But oh, here's Andrew, I love this Now I don't know what was on Andrew's mind But Andrew's watching all of this And he's obviously figured out Philip has missed it. So, he's missed his opportunity. Let's see if I can get in here. So he's looking around and in verse 8 it says, One of his disciples, Andrew. Here it is again. Simon Peter's brother. I wonder if he had a t-shirt that says, All right, everybody, Simon Peter's brother. Picture of Peter right here. Both of them together, you know, having a snack. So here he comes, Andrew. And I love this. He says to Jesus, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? Now, we don't know what was on his mind, but I kind of get the picture of Andrew coming up, bringing the boy to Jesus, pushing the boy over to him and sort of winking at Jesus. Now, this boy, he's got five barley loaves, two small fish, Jesus, (laughs) winking at him. But what are they among so many? Got anything in mind, Lord? It was your idea to feed them. I tend to think that he wanted to see Jesus do the miraculous and figured that was the only alternative, and thus that's what he was going to do to manifest his caring, loving heart as he had seen Jesus do that with him so often. But one thing is for sure, what we see about Andrew is here he is again bringing somebody to Jesus. The third time we see him moving again through the Gospels as he brings the Greeks to Jesus in chapter 12, verse 20, it says there were certain Greeks who came to worship at the feast and they came to Philip. Philip is a Greek name. Maybe that's why they came to him. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and they asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. But notice what Philip does again. We'll get to him in a few weeks. Philip came and told Andrew. Now, why did he do that? Some guys come up and they said, what we're interested in is getting to know Jesus. Philip effectively says, hold it. Have I got a guy for you? Andrew, Come on, this is what you do. These guys want to meet Jesus. So Andrew comes over and they go together and tell Jesus. So here's the idea, if there's people that want to get to Jesus, find Andrew, because that's what Andrew lives for. You find him first off, he goes and finds his brother and brings him to Jesus. He brings the boy to Jesus. He brings the Greeks to Jesus. We hardly basically know anything else about the man. All we ever see him doing when we do see him is bringing people to Jesus. So wonderful. I'll tell you, that just warms my heart. The guy's common. He's not a firecracker in the kingdom. He's not this great spiritual giant, but he is a man with a concern and he is a man with a passion. And that is bringing people to Jesus. For him, that was the one thing that mattered in life. I want to close with a story I read that just touched my heart so much today. You can close your Bible and just listen. It's a little lengthy, but it's worth it. It's about a man who had elephantiasis, a terrible disease in tropical countries. The skin of the disease victim becomes very thick and very hard and fissured like an elephant's hide. The part affected is enormously enlarged. And the writer says, actually, uh, Barnhouse shared this story. He said, I have seen unfortunate people whose lower legs running from above the knee down to the foot were from 12 to 15 inches in diameter. You're, you just swell up so badly. One poor sufferer from this disease in out in the jungles heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and was transformed he became a radiant christian and he did nothing but tell people of the grace of god which he had in sending his son Jesus Christ to die for them this man lived in an african village and he was determined that every soul in the village would hear the good news of salvation although it was extremely difficult for him to walk on his monstrous legs he thought nothing of the pain and he toiled from hut to hut Telling those who dwelt there about the Savior who had come into his life. Each evening he returned to his own hut where he was maintained in life by the kindness of his relatives. At the end of several months he was able to tell the missionary that he had visited every hut in the village and now he was starting to take the gospel message to a village about two miles away. Each morning he started out painfully and he walked the two miles to that village Went from hut to hut spreading the gospel and returned the two miles to his own hut before sundown. Having visited every hut in the neighboring village, he remained at home, but after some weeks he began to become more and more restless. He asked the pastor and the missionary medical doctor if the gospel were being taken to a village that lay 10 or 12 miles away from them through the jungle. As a boy, before he had become afflicted, he had traveled the jungle path to that village and he remembered that there were many people there and he knew that they needed the good tidings of the Savior. He was advised not to go to the village, but day after day the burden grew upon him. One day the man's family told the missionary that the man had disappeared from the hut. He had slipped out just before dawn. They had heard him go, but supposed it was just for a moment. He did not return in the family was concerned about him. Afterwards, the full story became known. Step after weary step. The afflicted man dragged his leathery legs and gigantic feet along the path that led to his goal. The distant villagers said that he had arrived after noon. His feet were swollen, bruised, and bleeding. He was offered food, but before he would even eat, he began to tell the people about Jesus. Up and down the village he went, to the very last hut, telling them that the God of all creation was love and that he had sent his only son to die that their sins might be removed. He told how the Lord Jesus had been raised from the dead and had come into his heart, bringing such joy and peace. There was no shelter for him in that village, so though the sun was low, he started on his way down the jungle path toward home. The darkness of Africa is a terrible darkness, and the night can bring forth many jungle creatures. The sun went down, and the poor man dragged himself along the dark path, guided by some insight which kept him from going astray. He told the pastor later that his fear of the night and the animals was more than balanced by the joy that he felt in his heart as he realized that he had told a whole village about Jesus Christ." About midnight, the doctor was awakened by a noise on his front porch. He went to the door with a light, and there was the elephantiasis victim, his leg stumps wounded and bleeding. The doctor and his helpers lifted the almost unconscious man into one of the hospital beds. Seldom had any of them seen such a frightful sight as those bleeding feet that had come back from such an errand of love and mercy. Unashamedly, the doctor told how he had ministered to those feet, cleaning and dressing them, and how his own tears had fallen into the ointment that he put upon the man's stumps. The doctor ended by saying, In all my life, I do not know when my heart was more drawn out to another Christian believer. All I could think of was the verse in the word of God, Oh, how beautiful are the feet of them that bring glad tidings, that publish peace. He was a man who had been sent by God to tell the story of what Christ had done for him. Although he did it at the cost of much personal agony, he had not flinched. He had gone through to the end to tell needy men the good news of salvation for their souls. A man afflicted with a disease that probably none of us will ever know the agonies of, so hard that the average person would never move off of their bed, so painful. And yet, because of his desire to lead other people to Jesus, he was willing to get up and go beyond the call of duty, as it were, to do what the average healthy Christian would probably never even consider doing for a moment. The man, I believe, had the spirit of Andrew. Not a flash, not a big powerful guy, not a big famous guy, not the super talented guy, not the head of the pack, but a common man a man who had come to know the love of Jesus Christ. Have you come to know that love? What are you seeking? Are you seeking Him? Are you coming to know Him? Are you coming to know His calling on your life? I do pray that if the love of Jesus has touched your life, that you will go out and find those that are in the world that are suffering the way you used to suffer and bring the love of Jesus Christ to them and be willing to go through what little suffering you may have to face to do it, to see people come to know the same Jesus you have come to know. And if they baffle you with their witty arguments and twist your mind with their intellects, those that are smart, resort to this. Come and see. Come and see. You may be witty, you may be smart, and you may be so proud with your intellect that you think you have all the answers, but I'll tell you this after I've told you the truth. Come and see. And if you will come and see, you will find that he will reveal everything he came to this earth to reveal about God. He'll reveal it to you. Do you know Jesus tonight? What are you seeking? What have you come for? He gives you a personal invitation to come to know him now. Open your heart. Don't play games anymore with God. Come and give your heart to Jesus and come to know him personally. Turn now from your sin. Open your heart now as we pray to God and let this be the turning point of your entire existence. So you can say, when the question is put to you, what are you seeking? I'm seeking you, Jesus. I'm seeking you. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, how we thank you for Jesus. How we thank you, Lord, that there is a cure for our sin to be found in the blood of Jesus. Lord, we confess our sin to you now. We ask you to forgive us. Here, seeing that from the very first moment, discipling these two men, you were looking for clear-thinking men with an honest mind and an honest heart who would be honest about their motives and follow you for you. Lord Jesus, we confess we're sinners. We ask you to forgive us. We ask you to come and live within us and to lead us and to guide us to be the center of our life, to be everything to us to be our Savior and to be our Lord, be our greatest and closest friend and our sufficiency and source of strength in this world. Come, live within us, manifest yourself to us, lead us forth in a very real way, and give us the privilege of knowing what it is that you would have us to do for you, and open our mouths, give us caring hearts, and a good measure of the spirit of Andrew to bring others to you. We do ask it for your glory, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.